morning, and thank you for your flexibility for us to begin at this point. Um, I would uh, say, as I said earlier, uh, Justice Designate Riggs uh, is completing her work today at the Court of Appeals. She plans to be uh, uh, sworn in later uh, today, and she may choose to participate. I believe she will choose to participate in the decision in these cases. She'll watch the oral argument um, uh, and then be able to participate. Uh, that being said, um, our case is in Ray Southeastern Ice Center, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, my name is Mark McDaniel. I served in the North Carolina Senate, but being in front of the North Carolina Supreme Court is a little daunting. May it please the court, Chief Justice, honored members of the North Carolina Supreme Court, I beg your forbearance. If I had not lived through this case, I wouldn't believe it. This case now has implications far beyond this case. The receivership has violated every rule and tenet of this court, including this court's 1950 Sharp case, by which receiverships have operated for three and a half generations. This case is the antithesis of that. It began, and the reason there is a receivership in the first place is the behavior of the receiver's partner, Byron St. Singh, filing a false and fraudulent UCC-1 finance statement. Let me say why that's important. A perfect storm overwhelmed the Southeastern Eye Center. Dr. Epps' business partner left the practice with five minutes notice and took half the revenue with him. Dr. Epps developed a heart condition in the spring of 2014, which precluded him from doing surgery again. That took the rest of the revenue. I informed Art Novison of Novison Family Investments and Mr. Byron St. Singh, who represented him, of the issues and the fact that Dr. Epps was going to sell Andrew Wythe paintings to raise several million dollars as a capital bridge until a buyer or replacement surgeon could be found. A deal was struck in which millions of dollars of Andrew Wyeth paintings were to be sold by a Dallas broker. I informed Mr. Nivison and Mr. St. Singh of that fact. Without authorization and with no signature by Dr. Epps, as required by law, Byron St. Singh went to the Secretary of State's office and filed a knowingly false and fraudulent lien on behalf of NFI. St. Singh put his name and telephone number on the UCC-1 filing. Dr. Epps had truthfully stated to the broker that the only lien those paintings had was with J.P. Morgan Chase. Two things are necessary in selling artwork. First thing is provenance. That is, that the snot's coming out of some kind of a slick print that it's actually the real paintings. That was beyond question. And the second is clear title. When they looked it up, they found this fake and fraudulent UCC-1 financing statement, and it blew up the deal. Mr. St. Singh is now a business partner with the receiver and his attorney, Mr. Fields. It caused the receivership to be formed in the first place. The receiver and his attorney, Mr. Fields. Have been uh, excuse well me, um, counselor. Um, perhaps you can. Oh, well, um, litigant. My, my apologies. Oh, um, I'm Justice Berenger. Uh, I, I'm a bit confused about this because. Uh, it, has this issue not been before us before the uh, creation of the receivership and and all of that? Uh, I'm I'm having trouble understanding why it's the focal point of our discussion today. Because it, it centralizes on what is going on now. 
uh, it was an interlocutory issue before. Now this is for a final decision and the final situation as how this affected and is affecting to this day the process. So is it your position that this, um, the, uh, the receivership having been appointed at all is appropriate for us today? Or how are you, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand your argument. I'm telling you that what they're doing now is that they're violating the rules and I'm gonna go through that and they're violating the rules in an attempt to gather additional money that's clearly not owed. Through the receivership, um, how, how are you connecting the receivership and why we should be discussing it today as opposed to what was directly in the order that has been appealed before us? Uh, the reasoning behind it is, is that they're all interconnected. If you'll, if you'll give me bearance, I will make that clear in the next couple of minutes. All right, good. I'll be following up. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, this goes on, and Mr. St. Singh filed 5.6 pounds of litigation against me, against Mr. Harris, and against Castle McCulloch. Over 700 pages, 34 claims, all of which were ruled unsuccessful and were subject to summary judgment and thrown out by the court. Included in the amended complaint against Castle McCulloch was a cause of action call, uh, claiming rights to the Castle property, but it did not survive that summary judgment. Now, they're ignoring the doctrine of collateral estoppel. Mr. St. Singh, as a partner with the receiver and with Mr. Fields is, and has obvious privity, is trying to revive the same claim against Castle McCulloch. Mr. St. Singh and Mr. Fields now say that they have a right to foreclose on a mortgage on Castle McCulloch that was paid in full to Newbridge Bank according to its official bank records on 9-25-2012. That can be found on pages 2171 through 2175. When Mr. Fields and Mr. Juder asked the business court for permission to foreclose on the castle, the court gave permission in the spring of 2021 based on the false representations that the mortgage still existed. Since that day to this day, no effort has been made by Mr. St. Singh and the receiver or his attorney to actually go to the Guilford County Clerk of Court. It's obvious they'd be thrown out on their collective ears. Not only that, but now the North Carolina General Statute 114 gives the right of foreclosure a 10-year period from the last payment made, assuming the ownership has not been changed. The ownership on Castle McCulloch has remained the same, and it's now been over 10 years since the last payment. It's now going on 11. And Mr. St. Singh runs a law practice specializing in collections and obviously knows the law and just as obviously knows that their representation of the business court would not hold water. It doesn't end there. The business partnership of Juder Fields and St. Singh took over JDPW Trust. JDPW is in a receivership based on Mr. St. Singh's motion to put JDPW in receivership and to appoint Mr. Juder as receiver, while at the same time, Mr. Juder was receiver of the Epps corporate receivership. Upon responding to that motion, Mr. Field asked the business court for direct assistance in avoiding a conflict of interest. Fields told the court that the first act of a receiver is going to be allow a claim against the receivership for $2.1 million that was received. The significance of that is to avoid a conflict of interest situation for the receiver by having that as a disputed claim where we would have a dispute with Navison with regard to whether that claim should be $2.1 million plus default rate of interest. That was in a hearing, 2016, transcript page 19, lines one through 11. Nothing was said as to what the $2.1 million claim represented. 
or even what it was for. Subsequent to that, no written claim to this day has ever been filed with a receiver. The law requires that any claim must be filed in writing. Uh, and here's First Citizens Bank versus Trust versus Barry. A judgment rendered in an independent action after the appointment of a receiver does not create a lien on the corporate property as against the receiver. All claims against an insolvent corporation must be presented to the receiver in writing. That has never been done. Procedure requires is set out in National Surety versus Sharp that any submitted claim would require that the written claim be reviewed and either accepted or rejected by the receiver. NFI made no written claim to the receiver of JDPW Trust. If a written claim has been made and either accepted or rejected by a receiver, then any interested party can expect, accept and ask for a jury trial. None of this procedure was followed. The first citizen's case was properly dismissed because it never made written proof with the procedure once the receivership was formed. If a written claim has not been made and accepted or rejected by the receiver, a court does not have subject matter jurisdiction over the claim unless and until a written claim is made. Quote, subject matter jurisdiction is a threshold requirement for the court to hear and adjudicate a controversy brought before it and must be conferred upon the court by either the North Carolina Constitution or by statute, Burgess versus Burgess. It was Mr. Fields who failed to follow the procedure. And the result was that Harris was, Mr. Harris was denied a jury trial. Mr. Fields stated in a pretrial conference on December 1st, 2021, and I quote, I think the position of JDPW and the plaintiff, St. Singh, is that we have resolved that claim. It was an allowed claim, even though it wasn't filed. It was in the amount of $2.1 million plus interest and attorney's fees. So we, meaning Fields and St. Singh, don't see anything to be tried because we think that's been resolved by settlement. In other words, anything that Fields and St. Singh settled, according to them, does not need a trial. They do not need to follow procedure and due process. As long as they agree between themselves, they can do whatever they want. In my opinion, as a layman, that's an astonishing arrogance. Due process simply was waived. Let's get to the JDPW Trust and let's talk about who the real situation, the real culprit is. The only signed agreement with JDPW Trust was signed by both parties on September the 21st, 2012. That contract appears on pages 477, 1477, in 1478, Mr. Dr. Epps fell behind on paying NFI because not an ability to raise money by quarter did turn over the medical equipment, which was the total liability that JDPW Trust had according to the agreement that was actually signed between Mr. Harris and NFI, Mr. St. Singh's client. What happened then, despite NFI having control of the equipment, selling the equipment and dispersing the money, Mr. St. Singh along with Mr. Fields now claim that $4,329,539.02 is owed. There's been no claim submitted. There's no, been no evidence submitted, nothing. Contrary to Mr. Field's filing, the actual signed agreement and the obligation of JDPW Trust was ended by Judge Howard Manning's order on January 9, 2015, excuse me, when the notes and equipment were transferred from JDPW Trust to NFI. Mr. St. Singh has had control of that equipment for almost nine years. Yet they're claiming that somehow JDPW Trust owes money 
when the equipment was already assigned to them even before the receivership was formed. As the business court found in its April 26, 2021 second summary judgment order, much was turned on the contract admittedly signed by both parties at 9 a.m. on September 24, 2012, could have been legally superseded by a contract with a photostatic copied Ford signature. This is the document. It's in pages 1749 and 1750. Without consideration, with an admitted forgery by Mr. St. Singh's own client, Art Nivison, that he forged this document by photostatic copying Doug Harris's signature, it waived the limit of liability of JDPW Trust by crossing it out. In sworn testimony, Art Nivison admitted photostatic copying his signature. Now, what has happened is that JDPW Trust, now represented by Mr. Fields and Mr. Juder, have adopted a forged document in order to promote claims that they have never put in writing and don't now exist, but they say they do because they say they've agreed to bunch themselves. If I may ask you a question about the nature of the orders in front of us, am I correct that these are orders for partial summary judgment and that no final judgment has been issued in this case? Uh, no final, the receivership hadn't been finalized. But I guess my question is, why isn't this appeal also interlocutory at this stage? He'll speak to that. Thank Mr. you. Harrison. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Um, what has happened here is that the court itself found, and this is what is really, really kind of troubling, the court itself has found that there was an attempt to, re to reverse the sworn testimony of Mr. Nivison with an affidavit penned by Mr. St. Singh. The business court itself denied, said that that was not an ability. The receiver of JDPW Trust in the record shows that the business court said that he could not contradict the testimony of the forgery by Mr. Nivison by an affidavit that was written later and penned by Mr. St. Singh. Despite all of that, this forged document is what they're basing their entire and continuing claims on about what is and is not owed. There is a troubling fact here, and that is that in the most recent filing for the monies that are still in the receivership. Because the receiver has not followed the rules and directives of the Sharp case, the loan secured creditor in this case, J.P. Morgan Chase, is still owed money. Millions and millions of dollars has been paid out to unsecured creditors most notably their business partner NF with NFI, and they claim that only $600,000 is owed J.P. Morgan Chase. What they leave out is the interest that's been accumulating since 2015, which is well over a million more dollars. In their report, they show they only have two assets left, one painting, in bronze hands of Andrew Wyatt. That's it. In short, the receivership is broke. They've blown through $30 million worth of assets. They now are faced with possibly not paying off the loan secured creditor, which according to the Sharp case, 
Secured creditors, without exception, are to be paid first. And no one else is to be paid until they're paid. Shock waves, if their activities are allowed to continue throughout this state, is going to be very pronounced. Council, I've allowed you to range uh, in multiple directions. You are here pro se. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not council. Um, but your notice of appeal, which you signed, said that you would be, or you're contesting, three different orders of the trial court, mm -hmm. all January 6th of 2022. I haven't heard you talk about why we should review uh, and favorably review, from your perspective, those three orders. I'm going to defer to Mr. Harris on that. Even though you signed the notice of appeal, yes, sir. specifically citing those three. Yes, sir. And I think that my briefs, the briefs that I filed with the court, explain that. Well, that's and really the purpose of our. Yes, sir. I am here. But what I'm saying is, is that the implications of what's going on here is that this case needs a second set of eyes to review what's been done because they have not complied with the receivership law and there's errors that have come as a result of that. I'll defer to Mr. Harris. May it please the court. I'm I'm Doug Harris at Greensboro Bar. And Justice Rose, the first thing I want to do is I want to answer your question. Uh, there have, strangely enough, been three separate summary judgment orders in this case. The first one uh, was where they were suing uh, Mr. McDan Senator McDaniel, suing Castle Cullick and me, and uh, we won that totally. Everything that Mr. St. St. Drew was thrown out so that, so that nothing was owed by us to, to, uh, to NFI. The second one, uh, pronounced a very, very definite jury jury trial was was needed. And this comes from the judge himself. Uh, this is the order of uh, uh, April 26, 2021. It says, uh, the exact amount of Doug Harris's liability is unclear from the record, however. For example, as noted above, the parties dispute which version of the assignment controls. The first version that's the version I drew and Mr. St. Singh and, I, and Mr. Knives and I both signed, that's undisputed. The first version contains provision that limited JDPW's liability in the event of default to forfeiture of certain collateral, that's the medical equipment that uh, uh, was ordered forfeited, and JDPW's interest in that collateral. Here comes the critical part. If the limitation of liability provisions is enforceable, JDPW's liability plaintiffs would appear to be zero. In other words, the judge himself was saying that if the jury decided that the first contract was the appropriate contract, keeping in mind the first contract is the only one that both parties signed, the second contract, Mr. Nodison's admitted under oath that he photostatted my, my signature onto it, and obviously I did not sign it. Uh, so now the reason we're here today is because there was a third summary judgment, and the judge took what I just read you, that the judge himself concluded, took it out and threw it away and said, well, we don't need to have a jury trial because, because the parties, Mr. St. Singh and Mr. Fields, who are partners, you know, legally in a written partnership, they have decided amongst themselves to allow the claim for $2.1 million. In other words, that's the only reason I'm not getting a jury trial because they struck that deal. And of course, the interesting thing about that $2.1 million is that was only permitted because they had a conflict of interest. They, need, they, they said in open court, uh, the only reason we need to have, the only reason uh, we have a conflict of interest is because it's $2.1 million. We want you to allow it, Judge. And the judge proceeded to say, well, I'm going to allow you to consider it. Uh, uh, but then what happened uh, was that there was no claim. There never was a claim. So you can't really consider it hadn't been a claim. This speaks to the first citizen's case. There never was a decision by the receiver to accept or reject it. And most importantly, and this leads right back to jury trial, uh, 
if they if they accept or reject it, anybody's interested, which I'm certainly an interested party, could have could could ask for a jury trial and accept to it. And I would have done that, except that and never even considered it, never even made a decision. So, but my my overall demand for a jury trial still exists in the original in the original request. So, so, and answer your question. I'm never going to get a jury trial on $2.1 million. It's going to be awarded against me. It's been awarded against me uh, as it stands right now. I'm never going to get a jury trial. And the third summary judgment did me in and took that away from me. Now, I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for the rebuttal, but I'll answer your question if you have a follow-up. Yes, I do. Thank you. That's helpful. But as I understand it, there are still three issues that haven't been resolved <clears throat> and that those will go to a trial and that once there's a final judgment, then you can appeal your issue about whether or not it was appropriate to grant partial summary judgment and, it, and ultimately have a jury trial if you're correct that that was an error. Yes, but uh, that forces us to have, you know, two, two full-blown jury trials that will probably go on for a couple of weeks with the complexity here, maybe longer, instead of one. In other words, it, it might be a lot simpler to say, uh, the business court made it made a mistake in taking away what it first said in the second summary judgment. Let's have a jury trial for everything, and that's what I've requested. So, but if we were to follow that rationale, wouldn't that essentially mean any time there's an interlocutory order um, that could be wrong, that we should uh, review it? How, did, well, how what distinguishes this? I'll tell you what distinguishes this case, Your Honor, because the Supreme Court in 1950. It, it issued a sharp decision, and it, and it laid out, you've got to have this stuff. You've got, you've got to follow the procedure. You've got to, you've got to have a claim first. You've got, to, you've got to have a ruling on the claim, accept or deny it. There's got to be a, a right to a jury trial after that. Uh, uh, all that's been ignored. Uh, we, we had this case catawalling straight ahead into disaster here because they haven't followed any procedure, nothing. In other words, if you read the sharp case, you're essentially going to have to say, well, never mind the Sharp case. It's been it's been good since 1950, but it's no good now, because because we're just going to set aside and let the receiver wander around where they do. We'll have a jury trial and sort it out later. We don't like the result, and and, and respectfully, Your Honor, that's a bad thing to do to to force to force all that procedure to be cast aside just because the receiver won't follow the rules. So I'll reserve my time if I may. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. I'm Rob Fields of the Durham County Bar. It's a pleasure to be in front of you. Um, I represent the receiver, uh, Mr. Gerald Juder. He's in the um, uh, audience here today. Once again, we're before you in this case on an interlocutory appeal where there are no final orders and no substantial right has been impaired. This appeal should be dismissed just like the last appeal was dismissed. Chronologically, <clears throat> the case was put into receivership as to some of Dr. Epps's companies. A settlement was reached with Dr. Epps and the receivership was expanded to other of his companies. In 2016, a settlement was reached with Navison between the receiver and Navison in order to liquidate the Navison claim and to provide for its orderly disposition. As part of that settlement, as part of that settlement approved by Judge Bledsoe, Navison asked for a receivership for JDPW because of clear irreconcilable conflicts of interest that Mr. Harris suffered as trustee. The settlement was not dependent upon that receivership being granted, but it contemplated that motion being filed. That motion was filed. Judge Bledsoe found that there was inherent conflict and a receiver did need to be appointed. When reaching the question of who would the receiver be, as previous 
entities had been put into receivership as part of this burgeoning credit failure. Um, Mr. Juder had been asked to take that role on. With regard to the receivership of JDPW Trust, his response was, I have looked at the Niveson claim. It is disputed. There are all of the factual disputes that you've heard about what happened in September of 2012 when the um, transaction was occurring between Niveson and JDPW and Broadstone and all of these other entities. I've looked at that. And if I'm appointed receiver, I would allow that claim in the amount of $2.1 million. The rationale for that is found in the record. You have part of that in the record before you. There's more that did not make it into this very voluminous record. But at record page um, 830, and 843, or 843 and 849 are the receiver's reply regarding the receivership, which describes his evaluation of the novice and claim against JDPW, the fact that that claim was for many millions of dollars. It could have been lost. On the other hand, there was no dispute that the $2.1 million had actually come from Niveson, had actually been used by JDPW to acquire property that JDPW then dealt with um, uh, uh, the way it dealt with it, which was the subject of further litigation. But there was no dispute about that. And based upon that situation, a settlement was reached. That settlement was reached as authorized and reviewed by Judge Brudso as authorized by Louder versus All-Star Mills. And the dispute between JDPW and Niveson was at an end. Uh, and excuse me, um, this gets to the point I first asked uh, as we open. Is is the existence of the receiver or any receivership or anything, setting aside the interlocutory issue, I understand your position there. What is your position as far as whether we should examine that if we did find that we should go down this path, notwithstanding it being interlocutory? The, the, the three orders that are actually at issue deal with changing one sentence or one paragraph in an order, and it was really an example in the order. It wasn't a conclusion, it was just the example in the order where there was a conflict between Judge Bledsoe's approval of the settlement in 2016 and his summary judgment order in 2019, I believe. So three years later, he had this one statement that said that there was still an issue as to how much money JDPW owed Niveson. So in the orders that are being appealed, Judge Bledsoe reconciled that conflict and said, my earlier order controls, this has already been resolved. I approve that settlement between JDPW and um, that's been established. We're not going to have a trial on that. There are other issues we have to have trial on, and those issues are addressed in um, the second order that he provided, uh, or the third order that he entered on um, that same day, and that is subject of this appeal, were the issues to be for trial. So he entered an order that said, I've already decided this. I've got to clarify what I said in my second order. I'm going to go with my first order. I've redone the order and redrafted it, and, or it to change one change, which is changing this one paragraph, the summary judgment order. And then here's what we need to try. 
And are you referring, uh, Counselor, to paragraph 142? Is that the one that has been deleted? Yes, Your uh, Honor. Based on that order? Yes, Your uh, Honor. And so just a short answer, uh, how I understand your, your background. Uh, short answer, how do we, do we review the uh, receivership at all based on the notice of appeal that's before us? Uh, the uh, receivership itself, I don't believe is before you. I think the only issue that it's before you, uh, the uh, appellants have taken this as an opportunity to wander at large through the record complaining about anything and everything that they have, have, have been unhappy with. Uh, but based upon the notice of appeal that's filed in this case, the issue before you is the deletion of paragraph 142 and um, uh, the clarification of that order uh, in light of previous orders in the case. Well, what do you make of um, your opponents on the other side argument about their jury trial and not having received that? The jury trial right would be on this particular issue is the right of JDPW, the trust, to have a jury trial on the Navison claim. The receiver chose to settle that instead of having the jury trial. It's not Mr. Harris's jury trial right, it's JDPW's jury trial right. Mr. Harris has claims asserted against him based upon his conflicts of interest. Certain of those claims have been resolved by uh, partial summary judgment because Judge Bledsoe found that there, was, there were conflicts of interest on the undisputed facts and there was no genuine issue of material fact. He entered an order in April of, I believe it was 2021, to that effect. There was no appeal of that order, shouldn't have been because it was interlocutory. We then get to uh, January of 2022 and we're trying to go to trial on the remaining issues and he clarifies his earlier order. That's all that happened. So there has been no denial of a jury trial right. Well, it, and, and if I might follow up in, in the time remaining for, uh, for your friends there, they can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm at least discerning an argument connected for the jury trial connected to paragraph 142 and its deletion. Um, it, I understand that to be part of their argument, or at least that's what, what I had discerned. I, Mr. Harris would like to have a jury trial on the issue of what does JDPW owe Navison. Mr. Harris doesn't have standing he no longer controls JDPW. He doesn't have standing to demand that jury trial. He doesn't have standing to control that issue. That issue has been resolved by settlement. That happened in 2016. He appealed in 2016 complaining about that. This court dismissed that appeal. We're now back, and he's still complaining about that. It, when it, there are, as has been noted, there are two summary judgment orders um, in, in, in this case uh, that are relevant to the JDPW trust and the claims that are at issue here. There are others, but there are two with regard to this. In one of those summary judgment orders, the Navison parties had most of their claims against Mr. Harris as an individual dismissed. That at the end of this case is potentially subject to an appeal based upon a claim by Navison that their jury trial rights were denied because there were genuine issues of material fact. That hasn't been brought to this court because it's interlocutory and it's not right. Mr. Harris and Mr. McDaniel are in no different position with regard to the summary judgment, the partial summary judgment order that came later um, in the case that found as to Harris that there were uh, no genuine issues of material fact with regard to various matters surrounding his clear inherent conflicts of interest. That order was not appealed and it's not before, before this court. So uh, one thing though, I, I just and I go back to Justice Earl's observations that she was making. So, I mean, our state's jurisprudence is very clear that 
the cost of having to go through litigation is never a substantial right it's just a fact of life that it costs a lot of money to go through a process like a trial and so the idea that you might have to do a trial and then appeal and show that there was a legal error and then there's a do-over and you have another trial that that will never be a substantial right that will allow you to appeal so to me, we, I keep hearing over and over this idea that a right to a jury trial is a substantial right. I'm not seeing how that could be the case. Now, there are some categories where that having to go through the trial would impact a substantial right. So like a double jeopardy clause claim, because why? The right is not to have to even be tried. I mean, sovereign immunity is another example. The government could say, we have a right not to even have to be sitting here in court. We're completely immune from suit. But to say I have a right to a jury trial as opposed to having the case decided by the judge seems to me just like any other argument that you could later uh, argue to the appellate court was an error. And if you're correct about that, the judgment of the trial court gets set aside and you get a new trial where you get your jury to decide the facts. What am I missing there? You're not missing anything. We agree. This, there's no substantial right at issue on this appeal. None. There wasn't one on the appeal before. There's not one on this one. If you get past that and decide to get into the merits, the only thing the judge did was to reconcile one order to an earlier order. You've already dismissed the appeal as to the earlier order that he reconciled, presumably because there was no substantial right being addressed in that appeal either. We would, I'm going to follow the, um, advice of the council in the earlier argument. Um, unless there are further questions, I will um, defer the rest of the time to my co-counsel, uh, Mr. Saint Saint. Unless there are any further questions, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Council. Please, may it please the court, my name is Byron St. Singh, and along with my partner, Joe Davies, we represent the Appalees in this case, um, Novison Family Investments, Old Battleground Properties, and Arthur Novison. Um, Your Honor, the subject uh, of this litigation, or the transaction that it surrounds, took place in September of 2012. Um, as part of that transaction, my clients loaned JDPW Trust $2.1 million. That was supposed to have been a short-term loan, a 60-day loan. Um, since that time, my client has, clients have been in litigation trying to recover those funds. Um, the receiver and Mr. McDaniel settled the claims by and between them in August of 2015. In March of 2016, the Novison's uh, claims against Mr. McDaniel were voluntarily dismissed. In April of 2016, Judge Bledsoe approved the settlement that's been discussed here today. Before approving that, that settlement was the subject of a written motion to which the appellants objected, for which there was a long contested hearing before Judge Bledsoe, and which ultimately resulted in an order, a written order, approving the settlement. The appellants appealed that to this court, and this court found that there was no basis for review of that order and dismissed the appeal. We are now here before you again in 2023, largely on the very same issues, largely on the very same complaints about the settlement that Judge Bledsoe approved in April of 2016. These appeals have significantly delayed 
the administration of these receivership estates and have significantly delayed Judge Bledsoe's ability to get these receivership cases to the finish line and tried. There are issues for trial, um, but we're not there yet. And we're not there yet because we're here, not for the first time, but for the second time. As Mr. Fields indicated, there will be a day, there will be a day when Judge Bledsoe tries all the issues that are to be tried and the receiverships are wound up um, and the assets in the receivership are dispersed. And when that day comes, then there will be final orders from which an appropriate appeal by a party that is not happy can be brought to this court. And one of those parties may be my client. But that day's not today, nor was it several years ago when this court dismissed the first appeals. It is our hope that this court will dismiss this appeal so that Judge Bledsoe can get back to finishing up this case and so that the receiver can wind up these various receivership estates. These orders that are being appealed are interlocutory. There is not a substantial right, as Mr. Fields discussed in answer to Judge Justice Dietz's question. There is not a substantial right here um, that would confer appellate jurisdiction on this court. These two appellants do not have standing, even if you were to find a substantial right. Neither of these appellants have standing to raise these issues. Um, neither Mr. Harris nor Mr. McDaniel are parties to the settlement about which they are complaining. They are, need, they are not creditors of JDPW Trust and they are not beneficiaries of that trust. They are not an aggrieved party uh, such that they would have standing to be before this court. As the court knows, only an aggrieved party has standing to appeal. And finally, your honors, the trial court did not err in its decision approving the settlement for the reasons that Mr. Fields said. The, the complaints about the appeal are literally the changing of one paragraph in a long order, um, which as Mr. Fields rightly pointed out, um, was really surplusage to the order. It wasn't a finding. Um, and Judge Bledsoe, um, upon that being brought to his attention, agreed and said that was incorrect, and he removed it. That was the only change to, to the order. Otherwise, um, the, or, the orders are proper. They were, notice was um, given to all parties, not just the ones here before you, but all parties uh, of the settlement, and Judge Bledsoe approved uh, the settlement after um, numerous objections and a contested hearing. Uh, it was in its discretion to do that, and there hasn't been any showing that Judge Bledsoe abused his discretion by approving the settlements. Um, I'm happy to answer any question. Those are my um, arguments. Thank you Thank very you, much. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Members of the court, uh, Justice Banner, I don't think you've gotten a straight answer yet to your question, <laughs> and I'd like to answer that for you. I don't think there's any Superior Court judge in the state that wouldn't have set up a receivership in this situation. That's not really what's under appeal or even under discussion here. What is under discussion and appeal here is that in this particular instance, a quite unique situation stood up. The prospective person who was going to be a receiver and receiver's attorney said, Judge, I got a problem. I got a conflict of interest because I represent this other place, and they got claims against each other, and they're suing each other. And I, I'm about to go in partnership with, Mr., uh, with NFI, and, and, and uh, that's going to create a conflict of interest, too. So just 
if there's, there's one way you can solve my conflict of interest, Judge, that's you can, you can allow this $2.1 million claim. Well, that's not a criteria for allowing claims. That's not a criteria for making claims. It, it, the, the, uh, the Sharp case is very clear that first you make a claim, then it gets considered, not the other way around. The judge doesn't have jurisdiction to have a claim that hadn't even been made. And, and so that's what we're complaining about here. We're, we're complaining about a severe departure from due process. Who says so? This court says so in a 1950 Sharp case. It says so very strongly. It says there are statutes here. You've got to follow those statutes. They're very strict. First Citizens reiterated it more recently. You must follow this. You must make a claim. If you don't make a claim, you're nowhere. You're not ready for jury trial. You're ready for nothing. And, and Justice Dietz, that goes to the heart of what's a substantial problem here. It's, it's the lack of due process. If you read the Sharp case and you, and, you, and you track that with what they did here, they're not within 50 miles of one another. They're way off. That's, that's a substantial issue here. And so, and, and so Justice Earls, we're not on our way to a trial for three cases. They don't have claims either. There's no claims involved in those cases. They haven't, they haven't been through the usual procedure where they, they get vetted. And, and if they had been, we'd be having a jury trial then maybe, because then if I accepted to what, the, what, what was concluded by the receiver, uh, then I could ask for jury trial. I've never had that opportunity. <clears throat> and, and they keep saying there's, uh, they keep saying there's, there's no jurisdiction there, not really before you. Well, that's not true. Think about, think about what the Sharp case says. It says you must follow procedure. When you get to the stage when your case is accepted or denied, any interested party can ask for a jury trial. Am I not an interested party if they're getting ready to take $2.1 million from me? Does that, is that not, is that, it's not some kind of interest for me? And, and so what we're trying to say here is that they're not denying what we're saying. Think about that. I've just said there's been no claim in the case. They haven't said, oh, yes, there was a claim. Mr. Harris is wrong. He's, he's lying to you. They haven't said that, have they? I've said to you that I've said to you the statute of limitations has even expired on pursuing the Casper claim, which, which also goes against me because that's all wrapped up in there together. Uh, the statute of limitations, 10 years, they haven't denied they ran past the 10 years. They haven't denied that, that Casper Culloch owned the property the whole time. They haven't denied they've gone against the statute. Uh, they haven't said a word about that, have they? I made that very clear what I was saying. They haven't said a word. And, and so sitting here, you have no reason. Thank you, counsel. Your time's expired. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for hearing me.